Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. Yes, I was actually surprised to hear that we were meeting next week, too. <laughs> so, I guess I'll be here. I don't know. Um, I was reading a book the other day about helium. I couldn't put it down. I was in a bookstore the other day, and some elderly gentleman walked up to me and told me that joke. Whatever. For those of you who have been in my class long enough, you know that my normal style of teaching is to start on verse 1 and go to verse 2 and then to verse 3 and then I stop and the next week I pick up at verse 4. It's just the way that my, my mind works and I like teaching that way. I think it forces me to go through the scripture in its entirety. Um, but there's a problem with it. And that is sometimes I get to passages that I just don't want to teach. Sometimes it's because of theological issues. You know, when we get to, we did Ephesians before we got to Philippians, and you keep hearing this word predestination, well, I've got to address it in some form or fashion. Now, if I'm really good, I wait till the end of the lesson and I say three sentences and we're done, okay? But there's other times that when I get to passages that they're not hard to understand. They're just really hard to do. And that's today's lesson. We're going to look at the first four verses, the first eight verses of Philippians chapter 4. And in these eight verses, we see a series of six commands that we are supposed to do. Remember, these are not suggestions. These are not, well, if you're not too busy, try doing this. And we're going to go through this list. And about half of them, I can say, okay, I'll take a B minus on that one. But there's a couple of them that I go, no, I'm not even on the grading curve yet on this one. One of them on this list, I was reading a book this week of sermons on Philippians chapter 4. He had eight sermons on the first eight verses. One of them, the sermon is titled, The Impossible Command. I'll let you guess which one that is. But we'll get to that in just a moment. So, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, before we get to the commands, you need to notice and you need to be reminded of his attitude toward the church at Philippi. I know this is difficult because we've been teaching half the lessons at home and a few of them here, so I have to repeat myself at times. The church at Philippi was one of the first churches that Paul started. He loves these folks. So when he gives this series of commands, he's not doing this because he doesn't like them. You know, I might not like you, and I start giving you a series of things you have to do, and I know you can't possibly do it. That's not the case here. Read what it says. My brothers, he has a relationship with them whom I love and long for my joy and my crown. He loves these people. These are his best buds. And he's telling them what is necessary to have, to have a successful life. And the first thing he tells them is to stand firm. What does it mean to stand firm? Well, we actually talked about this, if you remember, when we were in Ephesians and walk, worked through the uh, armor of God, you know, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shield and the sword and all this, and having done all that to stand, it's like you're in a battle, and let's go back to a battle that would have been in vogue at this time. 
You're standing in the line with your shield, your sword, or your spear. You're ready, and your job is to stand wherever you've been put. You can't sit there and go, well, you know, I think I'd be better off over there or over there. If they put you here, that's where you're supposed to stand. And your job as a soldier is to stand in that place because there's a formation of you. And if one guy decides, you know, I think I'll go get a drink, then the formation will fall apart. So when he finished the discussion of the armor of God, he says, you do all of this so that you can stand firm where God has put you. Now, the purpose of the armor of God was that you were prepared to stand there. It isn't like you're just some stray that he grabbed off the street and he says, here, go through out there and try to do something. He prepared you. He gave you what you needed to win the battle and then he told you to stand. Now, what is the admonition to us today? Well, what's the old song? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave. I've used the illustration before of my dog. You know, for the life of me, I do not know what my dog smells. But whatever it is, it distracts her from doing whatever it is she's supposed to be doing. I mean, she's wandering this way, and she smells something. And it's like, oh, I'll go this way for a while. Sometimes we as believers do the same thing. The admonition to us is that we be faithful where God has placed us at whatever point of our lives we're in. He may have placed you in this place for a particular reason, and you are to stand firm in that place. That one's pretty easy. Number two. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Those of you who have been in my classes before know that I have a horrible time pronouncing names, right? So I, being a clever person, went on YouTube. You know what the problem is? Nobody knows how to pronounce this. Well, everybody knows how to pronounce it, just not the same way. There was a YouTube video of different pastors reading this verse with totally different pronunciations of Sintichi, Sintica, Sinna, anyway. Two women, okay? I entreat these two women to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What is the problem here? Two women in the church are causing problems. Now, this is not anything that would ever really happen, right? <laughs> ever. Two women in the church are causing problems and issues in the church. Now, these are not pagan women who happen to drift into the church. These are two women who have worked side by side with Paul in sharing the gospel. They are believers. They are workers for the gospel. And something has happened to them that has caused them to go to war with each other. What is it that happened? We have no idea. It doesn't tell us what happens. It doesn't tell us, and it doesn't tell us that it matters. What it tells us is that the two of them are to agree in the Lord. What he is talking about here is the unity within the church. Now, we are probably not talking about any horrible moral uh, misconduct on the part of one of these women. If that were the case, we know that there is a process of church discipline that deals with that kind of thing. What we're talking about here is something that has caused dissension and it is spreading like a cancer throughout the church. One commentary speculated that these were two workers in the gospel and one of them was having a little more success. 
You know, that's the way it is, right? You have two preachers, they graduate from seminary together, they go out and preach, and one preaches in a small church and does a faithful job, but the other one has a really big church, and all of a sudden, the one that's in the really big church starts looking down on the other one, and the other one starts looking, I mean, and it causes issues. But that's speculation. But that's the kind of thing we're probably talking about here. What is he telling them? He's telling them that unity of the body, unity of the church, is more important than our individual squabbles and our individual problems that are seeping in and are causing dissensions within the church. And we need to agree in the Lord. Once again, these are two believers. He can tell them we need to agree in the Lord and expect some help. Now, it's interesting. He calls on two people. One of them he simply refers to as my true companion. And the other he refers to as Clement and says, I want these people to help. You need help. The thing we learn from this is sometimes, not sometimes, oftentimes, we in the community of believers need somebody to come up to us and say, you know what? Your ego is out of control. It just is. You need to step back, chill a little bit, and agree in the Lord what is important and is what is not important. And he calls on these two individuals to help. He's calling on the community of believers to help draw these, these two women back into fellowship with one another so that this cancer does not spread throughout the church. Now, I've been somewhat fortunate that I have never been in a church that has had a split or a division of this sort. But I know for a fact it happens a lot. It happened in this church before I joined. I've talked to friends who went to numerous churches that it happened. And I had some comment about maybe you were the pro No, that wasn't it. I've told you one of my favorite stories. and It's in Chuck Colson's book, The Body, which is about the church. The title is in ch of the chapter is The Right Fist of Christian Fellowship. And to make a long story short, at the end of the chapter, the deacons and the pastor get into a fist fight at the front of the church service during the service. And they are dragged before the Jewish judge who says, your, your God may allow this, but the state of Massachusetts doesn't. It happens all the time. We were driving through backwoods, North Carolina, several years ago and drive through this small town, and there's the sign, you know, the First Baptist Church of whatever. And a mile down the road is the original First Baptist Church <laughs> of whatever. And I'm going, there was a church split right there, one mile down the road. Why do we do that? Well, it's like I tell our mentoring couples when we talk to couples that are about to get married, if you let your ego dominate anything, you're going to get in trouble. If it has to be my way or it's the wrong way, then you're going to run into trouble. We as a church need to be committed to agreeing in the Lord about what is important and what is not important. The whole discussion about spiritual gifts is given to us so that we know that while my gift and your gift and someone else's gift may be totally different, we are all important to the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is telling these two women in the church. So far, so good. Then we get to verse 4. I have trouble with verse 4. I don't have trouble understanding verse 4. The words are as clear as they could possibly be. I mean, 
theologically, there's no issue here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you didn't catch it the first time, I'm going to tell you again in the same sentence. Quick question. When are we supposed to rejoice? Always. Second question. Do not answer this question. How many of you rejoice always? Sometimes I have difficult rejoicing sometimes. Always? In every situation? In every circumstance? Rejoice? What in the world is he talking about when he talks about rejoicing? Let's remind ourselves where Paul is writing this. He is in prison, jail, house arrest, something, probably in Rome. He is chained to Roman soldiers. He has been beaten throughout his career. He has been stoned throughout his career. He has been flogged throughout his career. He has been shipwrecked throughout his career. He has been rejected by his own people throughout his career. Top that. And in the midst of that, Paul tells us, rejoice always. Rejoice in every circumstance. Now, one of the commentaries I was reading pointed out, and I think this is interesting, that Philippi is a Roman colony. So while it's over in Asia Minor, it is populated probably by Roman citizens and or people who work for the Romans. And if it is a typical Roman colony, it is quite possible that 90% of the population of Philippi are slaves. And if that's even close to being the right answer, then you have to assume that there were a certain number of people in the church at Philippi whose day job was being a slave. And he's telling them, rejoice always. Kind of makes my problems and your problems not look that major. But wait, you don't understand. I have disease. I have family members who are running amok. I have fill in the blank. And Paul tells us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, rejoice always. So maybe we just don't really understand what the word rejoice means. Because you see, we have this difficulty. Not you, me. I'm telling you, I have trouble with this verse. Is that we have in our minds so connected happiness and joy that it is sometimes beyond our thinking that I can be in the midst of difficult times and be very much unhappy while at the same time having joy because what God is accomplishing. But we don't understand that. We think those two have to be connected. If I'm not happy, if I haven't had a good meal, had a good night's sleep, don't talk to my wife about that right now. We had two grandkids last night, so. If I haven't had those, then I can't be happy. And if I can't be happy, I can't be rejoicing. And Paul is leading us astray. But for Paul, it's very clear that there's no connection between happiness and rejoicing, between happiness and joy. Because if you ask Paul, he would tell you that his life had been continually joyful, even when it's been miserable. Now, 
Before we have a little discussion about that, which is what all the books want to talk about, how do you rejoice when things are bad, I, I had this idea that one of the problems is that we don't necessarily rejoice when things are good. Why do we not do that? Well, I think I know the answer to that, which is a lack of gratitude. When my oldest son was little, I mean little, playing little league baseball, I took him to the playoffs, okay? Now, he wasn't in the playoffs, but he wanted to go watch some of the game. So I took him over to the park and I dropped him off. And I said, I'll come back in an hour, okay. And he starts to walk off and I say, come here. And I give him a dollar and I say, buy a Coke. And his eyes light up and he goes, wow, thanks. And I drive off and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I spend thousands of dollars raising this child. I put a roof over his head, food in his stomach, clothes on his body. I pay for baseball. I, I spend thousands of dollars with not a moment of gratitude. And he's elated because I gave him a dollar. Why? Because he didn't expect it. And you know what? That's the way we are with God. We, as 21st century Americans, just assume we're going to have lunch today. We just assume that the sun is going to shine or the rain is going to come whenever we need or whatever we want. We just assume that things are going to be well. And we do not give thanks to God for what he has provided for us. We don't rejoice when things are good. And if we're not rejoicing when things are good, how in the world are we ever going to rejoice when things are bad? But you know what? There is the situation where when things start going bad, you do begin to understand what God has provided for you. I've been through chemo. I've been through the worrying about what's going on here and there. And, be, and in that situation, you begin to think that, you know what? There are certain things that I've taken for granted that just aren't that important. And there's other things that I've taken for granted that really are important. And you know what? When we begin to understand that all of these things, the good, the bad, all of them are gifts from God to help us move forward. Then we can begin to rejoice. Now, let me give you a little pastoral hint, though. If you have a good friend who's going through some great tragedy, a family member has passed away, they found out about some horrible disease, whatever, do not walk up to them and say, you know what? Rejoice in the Lord always. It's like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. I believe that with every fiber of my being, but don't use it as a club to beat somebody over the head. Oh, you unbeliever, you don't understand that God's going to work this disaster out for good. Let God deal with that. Let God work through that. So, we are called to remind ourselves, to remind ourselves that all of life is a gift from God, that God has provided us what we need, and that God is in control, and at the end of the day, it is going to work out for the glory of God. Remember earlier in this book, Paul telling us, you know, I could die tomorrow, and you know what? That sounds really nice. I'll go to heaven. I'll be with God. Whew, or I could live and continue to share the gospel with others. You know what? I don't care. That's someone who has learned to rejoice in all situations. I'm not there. I'm not even in the B-minus range. I'm struggling with that but then it gets worse oh nope there's one more before we get to the worst one verse 5 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This word reasonableness is interesting. I put up there several different versions of uh, how it's translated. Uh, John Piper has a little video where he spends uh, 10 minutes trying to discuss that he thinks gentleness is probably a better translation of this word. Notice what this command is. The command is not that you be reasonable. The command is not that you be gentle. The assumption is that you're reasonable. The assumption is that you're gentle. The command is that you let this be known to those around you. Now, that's interesting, okay? Because if I consider myself a gentle person, but when I'm around you, you really tick me off. And, you know, I get kind of ticked off. And when I get ticked off, I start talking louder. And I may go home and think, you know, how could that happen to me? Such a gentle person. Maybe I'm not a gentle person. But look at these different words. Gentle spirit, gentleness, moderation. And then, of course, there's the amplified that just keeps talking forever. Forbearance, modesty. What does this mean? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then there's a reason why we're supposed to do this. The reason is the Lord is at hand. Let's use the word, just because we understand it a little better, gentleness. What does it mean to be gentle? 11.30 last night, 11.15, it wasn't 11.30 yet, I'm walking around my bedroom holding a five-month-old who will go to sleep, hmm? four months old, who will go to sleep in my arms or in Teresa's arms. But for some reason, the transferring from there to the doesn't work. But you know what? I can honestly say I'm gentle with that four-month-old. I am. I have learned to be gentle with four-month-olds. I can go over to the nursery. I don't want to do this, by the way, but I can go over to the nursery, sit in a rocking chair with the screaming baby for the entire church service, and you know what? I'll do it. I can do that. I have taught myself to be gentle with small babies, okay? That's a start, we'll, we'll build on that. But when I get around adults that share different beliefs about religion, politics, we'd better not talk about that one. We won't talk about politics, uh, about where to eat dinner, all these, all of a sudden, the fact that you have a different opinion than me really ticks me off. And all of a sudden, that gentleness begins to seep away. Our society does not really appreciate gentleness in adults. It really doesn't. In a moment, we're going to talk about think about things that are commendable, things of good respect, things that we hold in high regard. And at this point in time, gentleness is not one of those things. But if we go back to the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Nobody today wants to be known as being meek. Why? because it's too close to the word weak. I don't mind you thinking that I'm gentle if you know that if I wanted to, I could beat any one of you to a pulp. But I can't, and I don't, and I shouldn't, 
So I struggle in my ego of appearing to be gentle while worrying that if you see me as gentle, you will walk all over me. Guess what happened to Christ? Christ, who, by the way, was described as being gentle. And guess what? They killed him. And you know what? He really could have beat everyone in the room to a pulp. I've told you this numerous times because I just like it so much. He tells his disciples, you know, I could bring down a couple of legions of angels if I needed to. Which always produced the question in my head, how many angels would it have taken? One on a bad day. Jesus really could have zapped everyone in the room, and he didn't. Why? Because he's gentle. Now, we can have a discussion about driving out the money changers in the church and all that stuff, and that's an interesting discussion. But that was not his normal mode of operation. The sinner comes to him, and he's gentle. The person who's asking questions comes to him, and he's gentle. And that's what we're supposed to do. And not only that, we're supposed to do it in such a way that everybody knows it. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Now, let me put in a little caveat here just to make sure your thinking is correct. The internet is a cesspool, okay? Now, you go into the internet and somebody says, Christians are bigoted idiots. And I'm not quoting anybody, but that seems to be something that you might say. And what do you want to do when you read that? You want to respond. No, I'm not. You pagan whatever. Let me give you a suggestion. If you ever get that sensation, unplug the internet. You're not going to win the argument on the internet. Forget it. Think about the person who lives next door to you. Think about the person that you run into at the grocery store. Think about those people whom you actually have interaction with. Do they see you as being gentle, as reasonable, of a gentle spirit? Is that what, don't worry about what those people are saying on the internet. I've got a horrible confession to make. When I was much, much smaller, my brother, and I am convinced, to this day I'm convinced, he did this on purpose. My brother had learned the way to make me mad was to tell me to not be mad. Well, don't get mad, Kyle. And that just irritated me. And guess what? I got mad. And you know what? The internet is telling you to get mad. Christ is telling you to be gentle. But what about clearing out the money changers in the temple? Didn't he do that? Yes, he did. And you know what? He's God, and you're not. You mean we're not supposed to contend for the faith? We are. We are to present the gospel. We are to present why we believe, what we believe, and we're supposed to do it with a gentle and quiet spirit. You know why we do that? Because the other doesn't work. Because if I start yelling at you and you start yelling at me, all we're going to do is spend a lot of time yelling at each other. What's that line from Fiddler on the Roof? 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and pretty soon we're all blind and toothless. Don't worry about those. Worry about the ones that God brings you in contact with. And let your gentleness and reasonableness be known to them. That's what the instruction, the command is that we are to do. And there's a motivation for this. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. There's two interpretations of this. The first is probably the right one, which is the Lord could come back any moment. He could. That should be the motivation for you to be gentle with those around you. Why? Because do we really want the Lord returning while I'm yelling at my neighbor about he's going to rot in hell because he's not doing things the way I want him to do it? No. We don't want God to find us doing that. But the second possible interpretation is it's referring to the fact that God is here now. He is around us. Now, I mentioned a while ago, we don't like the idea of being meek because it sounds too much like the word weak and nobody wants to be weak because if we're weak, people are going to walk all over us. Look at it this way. You're a mild-mannered person. And you've got the Hulk behind you to protect you. You can be as gentle as you want. Because if somebody messes up with you, he's got to deal with him. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is there to protect you. Wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. He didn't protect Paul. Paul got beaten. Paul got whipped. Paul got stoned. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul is in prison. And Paul will sit there and tell you, he's protected me every step of the way. Remember the old story of Elijah? Was it Elisha? The army comes after him. And his servant looks out the window and says, hey, dude, there's an army around us. And Elijah goes, so? We got more than that. And the servant says, are you nuts? This is a loose translation of the story. Are you nuts? And he prays, Lord, open his eyes. And sure enough, there's the bad guy army surrounding them. And surrounding all of them is the army of God. If the Lord is at hand, what's ultimately going to harm you? What can really separate us from the love of God? And the answer is nothing. You can be gentle. You can be gentle because God's got it all under control. But wait, I, I, I might not be comfortable. You're not, right, you may not be. Paul is in the least comfortable place you could be. But guess what? He knows that God's in control. And he can be gentle. Because the Lord is at hand. Verse 6 and 7. If it wasn't bad enough already. Let your reasonableness, verse 5, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, another one of those dumb questions. What can we be anxious about? No, I flipped the question. What can we be anxious about? Nothing. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't have enough hands. How many of you have been anxious about something in the last 24 hours? I told you that I retired a couple of years ago, and I've started teaching high school history to homeschoolers. And we're talking very small, like I had 12 students this year, okay? But one of the things that has stood out in my mind is how anxious some of these high schoolers are. 
I mean to the point of not being able to function. And I'm going, how in the world? You don't know what a real problem is. That's my adult mind kicking in, right? Trust me, though. Go back to gentleness. I'm very gentle, okay? But my mind is sitting there going, you're nuts. But I would never say that. This is the one that the book of sermons that I read about Hebrews chap- you know, Philippians chapter 4 referred to as the impossible command. How in the world can we do this? Be anxious for nothing. Now, once again, let's go back to Paul. What is Paul anxious about? Well, in reality, he does have concern for a lot of different things. He has these churches scattered around. He thinks about them. He prays about them. He is concerned about them. So before we get too far, we need to talk about what the difference is between being anxious and just being concerned about something. You know, there's the old joke, I'm concerned and you're worrying too much. But we may have the exact same emotions. It's just, this is me and that's you. What is the difference between an anxiety and just a healthy concern for those around us? Let me give you a suggestion of an answer to that. We are anxious when we are no longer standing firm where God has put us. We are anxious when we are no longer agreeing with each other in the Lord. We are anxious when we no longer rejoice in all things. Our anxiety has pushed all of that to the side. We are anxious when our gentleness is not demonstrated to those around us. These are just some random examples that happen to be the first four verses that we read today. When our anxiety, when our worry gets to the point that we are no longer doing what God would have us to do, that means we have crossed a line. That means we are being anxious, not just showing concern, I am concerned about my children, and sometimes I am anxious about my children. But sometimes I just have to rely upon the Lord to take care of them. When my children started getting into the teenage years, at the beginning, if one or more of them were out somewhere in the evening, I would always stay up and wait for them to get home. They would go babysit or to a party or something, and I would wait for them to get home. And you know what? It finally dawned on me, if I keep staying up till one o'clock waiting for a child to get home, I'm gonna go crazy. And I just started going to bed. They'll call me if there's a problem, okay? You cannot survive being anxious about everything. Now, The interesting thing about this, though, is that the verse gives us the solution. The verse tells us how to solve this problem. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is the solution to anxiety. When I have anxiety, and I choose not to follow the solution, which I might add is probably most of the time for me, I mean, Why do that when you can just stew about it for a while, right? What is the solution? Prayer. Now, I told you about my high school students who are very anxious. What is the solution to their anxiety? Well, not to criticize other parents, because I, as a general rule, do not do that. Some of the parents think the solution is to remove the source of the anxiety. Oh, you're having trouble in math class? We'll just take you out of math class. Oh, you're ha- You know what? These kids are doomed. 
That's not the solution. Because if you get anxious about sharing the gospel, the solution is not to not share the gospel. The solution is to pray, to ask God, to ask God to help you, to ask God to give you the peace that defies understanding so that you can handle that situation. That's the solution. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything Everything, I hate these absolute words. Don't they drive you nuts? What are you supposed to pray for? Everything. In particular, everything that makes you anxious. What makes you anxious? I told you we weren't going to talk about politics, right? They make us anxious. Pray. We are told in the scripture to pray without ceasing which is really weird because, you know, you do have to do things in life. That's true. You do have to do things in life. But you do them with an attitude of dependence upon God, which you express to God by prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for providing this. And sometimes this is really bad. And you know what? You may actually get to heaven before you understand why this was a good thing. But we trust a God who says, I will use all things for your good. Not that all things are good, but I can use them for your good. Be anxious for nothing. As I normally do on my, I mean, before I teach a lesson, I go walking around the block, right? Last night, I'm doing this about 9.15. And I start in my head producing this list of things that I'm anxious about. You have your list. If you tell me you don't, you're lying to me. Actually, I hope you don't. Paul doesn't. He doesn't care if they kill him. They can beat him, throw him in the jail, and he starts singing songs. Why? Because he's learned to depend upon God. He has learned to trust in God. And he has received the peace that we are incapable of truly understanding. How is it in the midst of his difficult circumstances he can write this kind of stuff because he knows the peace that comes from God. That one, I'm not even at a B minus. And finally, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The last command that he gives in these eight verses is to think about certain things. Now, there's an assumption here that we have difficulties with. The assumption is you can control what you think about. And we have kind of decided that, eh, you know what, I'm going to think about whatever just pops into my head. And off it goes, like my dog smelling something. What Paul is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that you can determine what you think about. Now, I've told you before, my dad was an insurance salesman, and he was very good at it. He sold life insurance, and throughout his life, he read lots of these, you know, how to be a success in selling books, and being a good father, he gave these books to me to read, right? 
And there's this genre of books, and some of them have gone berserk, and about every generation they get republished in a different format, that I can control the world around me with my thoughts. I've told you, one of the weirdest books I ever read, I had a coworker who said, this was the greatest book, it changed my life. So I picked it up and I read it. And I came to him and I said, do you have any idea what this book is really saying? And he goes, well, I didn't really finish it. <laughs> this book was saying that if you changed your thoughts, well, if you did not think that gravity existed, you would float to the ceiling right now. That's what the book said. If you did not think cancer existed, you would never suffer from cancer, ever. Well, I hate to tell you, there is an external world that really does exist. It was created by God, and it is broken. That's why the cancer is here. But it does really exist. Thinking is not going to change the universe. But thinking changes how you view that universe. And I know, because you're like me, what we think about all day long. We read the newspaper, or watch the TV news. I don't do TV news, but I read the newspaper. I read my magazines. I read about everything going in the world. And you know what? I am, did we say ticked off a while ago? And all of this stuff begins to invade my thinking. And what Paul is telling us is you need to control your mind. You need to put your mind under the lordship of Christ. And you need to think about certain things. Now, I know there are times of your day you have to think about things, okay? You have to think about what's for dinner. You have to think about what goes next when you're fixing dinner. You have to think about different things, but when you don't have to think about something, what do you think about? You're thinking about something. You are. You know, not to pick on my wife, but, you know, sometimes I do ask her, what are you thinking about? And she says, oh, nothing. We're always thinking about something. It may be this mess of, I mean, that's me. It may be this mess of stuff that I can't put any label to, but we're thinking about something. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, these are the things you need to think about. What are these things? Whatever is true. Okay? We had a lesson last year when we worked through our worldview stuff. We had a lesson about truth. Living in this postmodern world that we all live in. I tell my young people that I teach, you are postmodern, whether you accept it or not, you are. And it denies the reality of an absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. What is truth? What works for me? I was reading a book yesterday, and it was talking about this uh, friend, confidant, help to Winston Churchill. And it said that, in the book it said, what was true for this individual was whatever helped Winston Churchill, his friend and the prime minister. He'd tell you anything if it helped Winston Churchill. And sometimes that's the way we are. What helps my group right now, that's got to be the truth. No. What is the truth? The word of God is the truth. There are other things that are true. But the word of God is the truth. But you know what? There's a lot of things out there masquerading as the truth. There just are. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of praise, and that one is fascinating to me because there's lots of things that our world today views as being honorable that certainly violates the word of God. More about that in just a moment. Whatever is just, God is real big on justice. But once again, we've kind of messed up the whole word just in our society today. And we as believers 
need to know what the Scripture says about justice so that we can understand what the world is saying and what the problem with it is. That's a whole separate lesson. Whatever is pure, what is pure? That which is not mixed with something corrupting. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think most of you would agree with me that a lot of the time I do things from very mixed motives. Yes, I want to help you, but I also want to have this angle over here. Purity of mind, purity of thought, purity of actions, this is not real big in our society today. Now, just remind ourselves, we are called to live according to the truth. We are called to live pure lives. We are called to live all these things. But what this verse is telling us, we need to think about these things. Which brings me to yet another point about our thoughts. The first problem is, can we really control our thoughts? And the second is, do we really want to control our thoughts? Because you see, if I misbehave in public, somebody's going to find out about it and they're going to call my mother. Even at this age of my life, they're going to call my mother. But I want to be this autonomous human being. And I can do that in my thoughts. I can sit there while I'm driving and think any thought I want and nobody is going to ever know. Number one, God knows. Number two, what's in our thoughts will eventually work its way out in our life. We are not autonomous human beings. We are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon God every day of our lives. And God has said, this is what is good for you. And what is good for you is to think about that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable. What do we hold up? What do we commend in others? That's what we need to think about. Not what the world says is commendable, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The idea of if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise is to tell us that this is not necessarily a complete list. There are other virtues that we should be thinking about. Where do we see all of these demonstrated in the life of Christ? So here's the question. When you don't have to be thinking about something else, what are you thinking about? I know the answer, and I'm not going to tell you my answer. Because I like this idea that that's my private world, and you can't see it. But the reality is, God sees it, and it will affect our lives. So, what causes, I don't know, dissension in the community of believers? Thinking about the wrong things. The sermon that I read on this verse says, the problem is we're all selfish. The problem is we spend our time not thinking about what is true, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence. We spend our time thinking about us. And he tied it back to a couple of chapters ago. Remember what it said? Christ, who was in fact equal with God, didn't think that equality with God was worth grasping, but emptied himself and became like you and me. And you go, that's not that big a deal. We're pretty cool stuff. You're not God. We are called to demonstrate our gentleness. To demonstrate our gentleness 
we need to control our thinking. We are to rejoice always, but if we're thinking about the wrong things, we're not going to rejoice. We are to stand firm, but if we're thinking about the danger and maybe God will desert me, then we're not going to stand firm. All of these commands are connected one to another. You see, when I first worked through this list, I thought, okay, there's a standalone one, there's a standalone one. No, they're bricks put together into a structure. And what Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is telling us is stand firm where God has placed you, and here's how you do it. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these commands. I pray, Lord, that through the power of the Spirit, we would think about these things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.